Welcome to episode 68 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Patty Durand, President and CEO for the Smart Energy Consumer Collaborative, SGCC, a consumer-focused nonprofit aiming to promote the understanding and benefits of modernized electrical systems and a consumer-safe, consumer-friendly smart grid among all stakeholders in the United States. The SGCC gathers all electric industry stakeholders, consumer and environmental advocates, technology vendors, research scientists, electric utilities, and others to listen, educate, and collaborate, creating significant research, best practices, and other collaborative materials aimed at modernizing U.S. electric systems. The Smart Energy Consumer Collaborative believes the success of smart energy innovation depends on the full engagement of the people at the end of the electric delivery chain, of which most of us are, and with our increased time at home these days and use of technology, our dependence on energy is greater than ever. COVID infections are on the rise, so please be careful out there, and please remember we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, take the time to thank people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Patty joined the Smart Energy Consumer Collaborative in January of 2011 as their first president and CEO. Before coming to SECC, she worked for Georgia Tech, where she focused on smart grid research projects and helped to submit almost $10 million in grants to the Advanced Research Projects Agency, Energy, better known as ARPA-E, and the Department of Energy. Before that, she served as the executive director for the Georgia chapter of the Sierra Club, where she focused on energy policy and programs. Patty also served on the board of the Smart Grid Society for the Technology Association of Georgia for two years. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with Patty Durand president and CEO at Smart Energy Consumer Collaborative. Patty, welcome to the Climate Champions. Hi, Lee. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to engage in climate change mitigation? Sure. There was a really pivotal moment. I guess about 20 years ago, I held a job that was boring to me. I guess everyone <laughs> has, has had that experience. Most jobs that, are boring, I think. <laughs> well, yeah. So that was my situation about 20 years ago. I was an IT consultant and I was bored a lot. I had done it for eight years. And so I started to do a lot of volunteering in the community just for something different to do with my time outside of work. And I've always loved animals. I've always loved nature. And so one day I decided to attend an endangered species conference in Georgia. Every state has endangered species, and I wanted to know which ones were they in Georgia. So 
I went to this conference and it was really good. It was toward the end of the second day and there was an author talk. He had written a book about ecology and he finished his talk and it was good and all that. And then Q&A came and I was sitting toward the front and on the end row. And so the line for questioners was right beside me. And I watched the people in line and there was a man there who was very angry in the line. He was shaking with anger. I've never seen anything like that. And when he got to the microphone, he identified himself as a scientist from the CDC, Center for Disease Control. And he said, this is all great what we're talking about today, but there's an elephant in this room that no one has mentioned. And I can't believe it. It's dismaying to me. It's upsetting. And that is climate change. Why are we not talking about climate change? That is the most important thing that we're dancing around. And I don't remember what the author said. I just remember that question and that questioner and his anger. And I was startled. The whole room stopped. Like you could hear a pin drop. I think we were all kind of shocked. And I went away from there and looked into it. I hadn't heard about climate change. I didn't know what he was talking about. I guess maybe a lot of people didn't. So that was really pivotal to me, and that's what did it. So you looked into it, learned more, and said, ouch? Yeah, I realized he was right. I read books. I started noticing stories in the paper on television that I hadn't noticed. You know how when you learn a new word, you see it everywhere? Yeah. That started happening to me. And then I was, yeah, I'm like, this is serious. This is important. We'd better get going, just like he said. And why is climate change personally important to you? Well, you know, there's a saying that... I think most people get wrong unless they think about it. And that saying is, you know, we have to save the planet or saving the earth, you know, variations like that. But earth is going to be fine regardless of what we do about this or anything else. It will continue to exist. But in my mind, climate change is personal to me because it's going to affect our comfort on earth and will take the climate the stable climate that we're used to, the weather patterns, when spring starts and all those things, and it will destabilize that. And you can see how comfortable things are already with record-setting heat waves, flooding, wildfires, with every catastrophic hurricane. And even when we went to Miami, I guess about four years ago, South Beach, there was flooding in the road when no storm had happened. It's just called clear sky flooding where you drive through and city officials were pumping water out of the road that had nothing to do with a storm. It was just sea level rise. You know, it's visible to any visitor and it's personal to me because I see it happening and I'm worried about our own comfort and our own stable climate. And when you say comfort, do you mean survival or just it's nicer when it's cooler? I mean the stable society and civilization that we live on. I worry about climate refugees, people that are fleeing regions of their country that are extremely hot, that are experiencing scorched earth or extreme flooding like New Orleans. New Orleans had a lot of people leave that city and not come back. Houston and wildfire areas in California and all areas in the West. There's just, you know, I worry about people and civilization and society, but also worry about animals and how they have to adapt to an earth whose weather patterns are changing. As I said a minute ago, I've always cared a lot about animals. So that is one reason I care about climate change. I care about people and the animals on earth that have to adapt and adaptation will not be easy. 
if it can even be accomplished. Because it won't be easy, I think a lot of people don't believe that there is climate change or don't believe the data. How do you convince people like that that they need to take action or get engaged somehow? Climate change is destabilizing the average weather patterns, and everybody can see that. Everyone knows that summers are hotter than they've ever been. Records are set every single year for the hottest year on record. These 100-year catastrophic flooding events are happening every five years, much more frequently. I don't know that people really need to be convinced. I think there's broad agreement that it's happening. I think the concern is people don't know what to do about it, and they fall into two camps. Some people think, well, there's nothing you can do about it, so we'll just do our best. And the other people say, there's a lot we can do about it, and let's get going. And I'm in that latter part. (laughs) (laughs) I recently said during a podcast that even if we can't do anything about it, I think the human way is to go down fighting, at least try. Yep, absolutely. And there are a lot more people who are fighting. We do consumer research at my organization, and we can see from the research that many, really the majority of consumers are in agreement and aware of climate change. There's no skepticism now. The question is what to do. That is the question. So we are about four months into the pandemic now. How has that affected what you do? It doesn't directly affect it just yet. We are in the process of gathering research and materials to help utilities and other stakeholders who want to help consumers with some of their impacts on high bills, loss of income, things like that, to help them with programs that the utilities might have to offer, ways to save money on energy use while they are sheltering at home. We're combing through our research to identify programs that we've identified before but might get lost to time as research gets older to pull out and freshen it up. And we're also doing new research. We've done a series of webinars to help stakeholders who are sheltering at home understand how they can help consumers. So we had three webinars on the topic of low to moderate income consumers and different programs and services that can be offered to them to help them navigate sheltering at home and higher energy bills. And then we have some webinars on beneficial electrification, which is transitioning from liquid and gas fuels, which emit more carbon than clean electricity does. So helping stakeholders understand what consumers think about that and what incentives and information they need to transition to cleaner energy sources, which electricity almost always is over gasoline and natural gas. So that's like an EV play, electric vehicle. Yep. It's EV. It also might be electric heat pumps for heating space or heat pump electric water heaters for heating water a lot of things like that. You talked a little bit about what you do, webinars and communicating with consumers. Can you talk broadly about what the Smart Energy Consumer Collaborative does and what you do? So the Smart Energy Consumer Collaborative researches residential, mostly residential, but also some small, medium business consumers in North America. We want to know what are consumer interests around energy and technology and what are their values What are their concerns? 
and how can utilities and regulators and technology providers and consumer advocates help consumers meet those values and address their concerns. So we were founded 10 years ago because 10 years ago was really when a lot of smart energy, smart meter and smart grid work was ramping up due to ARA grant funding, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. There was a lot of effort to modernize the grid to help utilities have more visibility into the grid and have two-way communications with their consumers. And so it was widely recognized that consumers would be a lot more engaged around energy in the next 10 years than they ever have been before. But what did they want? We didn't really know them. We didn't really know what consumers wanted. Do they have different attitudes and values? So we were founded to research all that. And we did find that consumers care a lot about energy. There is a subset of consumers that don't, but more than half, probably close to 75% of consumers care about energy for a variety of reasons. Among them, they care about climate change or sustainability. That's a big chunk. And then another big group doesn't care about that, but does care about saving money. They don't want to spend any more than they have to. So help them do that. And then a third large group of consumers really likes technology. They think it's cool. They're out buying the latest things. They're getting the Nest thermostat, the smart speakers, the home energy management systems, online portals, electric vehicles, that group. And they want help and information about how to automate their systems and how to read reports and findings and data. So there's a variety of attitudes and values like that. That's what we research and report on. How did you get from going to a conference, seeing an angry guy talk about climate change to where you ended up? So, yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, we all have our interesting pathways, I guess. For a long time, I worked in IT. I mentioned that I was bored in it. I finally left that field and I went to work in the nonprofit field to have more of an impact, a more meaningful job. And I started at a green space nonprofit working to advance green space programs and acquisition in a small community in Atlanta. And from there, I went to the Sierra Club. I was the state director for the Georgia chapter of the Sierra Club, where I worked on clean energy policy. And then while I was there, I went to another conference. I guess there's a theme here of conferences being very impactful, but this conference... <laughs> It was called a Good Jobs, Green Jobs Conference, and the Department of Energy was there. They had a presentation and a publication that was really eye-opening to me. It was called The Smart Grid. They have a report called The Smart Grid. I still have it on my desk. And I'll never forget it because in that report, it talked about how grid modernization was coming and how the current grid had to be strong, reliable, modernized, all while new technology, new computing and high-speed technology was being integrated with the current grid. And the way they presented it just seemed really exciting. It seemed really hard. And I wanted, and, and it talked about sustainability and how the smarter grid could ramp up and scale up. It is exciting and it is hard, it right? Is. In actuality. Yeah, exactly. So I realized I didn't have enough knowledge and skills to make that leap from the Sierra Club to the Smart Grid. So I left the Sierra Club and I worked at Georgia Tech with a professor and his team of PhD students. They were earning PhDs 
on different technology topics around the smart grid. And so it was a perfect place for me because I had an opportunity to learn about the technology and the engineering behind the smart grid at tech. And so I provided what they wanted from me, which was leads into the environmental community, connections and knowledge about what was happening in the environmental community. I was giving them that while they were giving me knowledge about the smart grid. So it was a really nice segue to taking technology experience, business experience and environmental experience and running nonprofit management experience into this position at the Smart Energy Consumer Collaborative. So it was a great way for me to gather the skills I needed for this position. As you said, it seems like conferences had a lot to do with your movement from one phase of your life to another. Did you have any setbacks? I don't know that I had any career setbacks. I mean, I've always worked really hard to get the positions I've had and pursued people like this professor at Georgia Tech. I had tried to network with him. He kind of gave me the blow off. He said he would meet me after the conference was over and he didn't. He left and I had to go hunt him down at Tech. And in my meeting with him, he was very standoffish. I just pretended that he wasn't and kept going. I mean, it was all very difficult to be that assertive, but eventually it worked. And I wouldn't say I've had any direct setbacks, but when it comes to climate change, of course, we've all had setbacks. I continue to be disappointed that the U.S. was the world's largest carbon emitter until 2017 when China surpassed us, but still has the record for putting the most CO2 in the atmosphere that we're not leading on this issue. People will say that China puts more out there than we do, but they don't count the many, many decades that yeah. we were contributing to climate change before China really exactly. started increasing their amount. Yeah, if you look at a graph, like take a piece of graph paper with all those little equal squares and map out how much carbon we've put in versus China, which are the top two, our square is enormous, like 40%, and then China is still in the 20s, and then everyone else is much smaller from there. And not defending what China is doing with regards to carbon right now, but they are also engaged in climate change mitigation at the same time. Yeah. We don't have a national energy policy. We don't have a national renewable energy policy. We don't have a national climate change policy. We don't have any kind of national initiative on this. I think it's a really big setback for the world for us to be like this. You'd rather see us in a leadership position then? For several reasons. We have the largest economy. We have the world's greatest scientists. We have the attention of the world in terms of past leadership capabilities, and we put the most carbon in the atmosphere. We certainly have great innovative and technological people, people like Elon Musk and many, many other scientists and innovators in this country who have already created great solutions to climate change with new technologies, but we just don't have leadership, so it's very disappointing. So turning this around, can you talk about some successes that you're proud of? Yeah, there's two. I guess there's two I would say I'm really proud of. One is I'm really proud that when I was hired to run SECC, I want to make sure it's clear it's not only me, with a good team and a good board, that SECC has gone from a small startup nonprofit that was not well known in the industry to a successful and well-known organizations with almost 200 members, dozens of important consumer research publications, and many, many 
good consumer educational pieces like YouTube videos and a website for consumers called What is Smart Grid? What is Smart Energy? And our work is cited in regulatory proceedings. So that's a really big accomplishment I'm really proud of. There's a lot of work on a lot of people's part for 10 years. Yeah, we celebrated our 10th anniversary this past March. Congratulations. Uh, February, I guess I should say, when we had our annual consumer symposium. It was really fun. And then the other one I'd say was when I was at the Sierra Club, I was part of a team that worked to stop an unnecessary coal-fired power plant proposed for Georgia. This was a merchant power plant proposed by a company based in New Jersey. And that company planned to sell the energy across state lines. And it was just outrageous on, on many levels, among them that Georgia had to deal with the dirty emissions and the heavy water use while the power was going out of state that Georgia itself didn't actually need the power. The Sierra Club had a few tactics besides opposing the state permit. We used volunteers to call the lending institution who was financing the plant. And I can't remember the name of it. I wish I could, but I can't remember the name of the bank. But you never know when you call for volunteers to do things if they actually will do things. But we were very amazed that over 600 volunteers all called this lender on the same day and basically took down their phone system. They couldn't handle it. And so they were unable to get calls in or out. Eventually, we weren't able to get any calls in. After that, the lending institution met with a few, not only the Sierra Club, but there were a few other environmental groups who were trying to get them to work with us. And then they sat down and negotiated away that power plant. I feel a lot of sense of accomplishment on that one. And of course, now there's no need for any new coal plants. There's a lot of new technologies here that are a lot cheaper for producing energy. So it's good timing. Your story is a very good example how when people work together and really get their message to be clear, they can make change happen, real change. Yeah. I mean, all we did was we asked volunteers to call in and ask this lending institution not to finance this coal plant that Georgia didn't need it. That's all it was. But enough people did it. Yeah. Very, very cool. We're in the midst of a cultural transformation with activists asking for racial justice and police reform. Can you discuss your thoughts on how energy production and climate change impact minorities different than more affluent communities? So that's a great question. And I'm really happy to be asked that question today of all days on June 19th, 2020, which is Juneteenth, which for the first time, a lot of the country is recognizing, celebrating and acknowledging instead of just the minority community, but the majority community is too. And according to Dr. Robert Bullard, who is the author of Dumping in Dixie, the first environmental justice book ever written, the pattern of dumping and environmental pollution in black communities, especially in the South, is very huge and disparate. And we have to recognize that those who've contributed least to the problem of environmental pollution and degradation, environmental destruction, will feel the pain worst. And that's true for every major city in the South, including Atlanta and Houston and Dallas. Dr. Bullard has documented that the vast majority of minority communities are where dumping occurs, where incinerators are sited. And then when you talk about climate change, you can see from the coastal areas, from the 2005 Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans to the Hurricane Harvey in Houston 12 years later, how heavily 
minority populations were affected. And so when we think about climate change, as a country, we've got to recognize that there's a huge environmental injustice that has happened, a huge amount of disparity that has happened. And even when the federal dollars come to rebuild, they tend to follow the money. The vast majority of federal dollars went to rebuild more affluent communities. And that has got to stop. So I think one of the most important things we need to do as a country is recognize that those who've contributed the least to the problem will experience the worst outcomes. And all of us together need to work to make sure that stops. This is a great time to do that as this country faces the cultural transformation that we're in with the Black Lives Matter movement. So for climate change, it's the same pattern as it's always been. Blacks, Latinos, the poor suffer the most and will suffer the most if we don't make an active effort to make sure that doesn't happen. And so I think that is where the environmental community needs to head. It's where the climate change movement needs to focus. It's where our elected officials need to focus to make these things stop so minority communities are not impacted more than anyone else. Poorer neighborhoods tend to be located often near the worst power plants that are the oldest that have the most pollution and near highways and freeways that are near vehicles going back and forth. So they get a lot more pollution as well as climate change impact. In fact, some of the studies that are out now show that non-attainment cities and non-attainment for air quality like Houston and Atlanta have a more disproportionate attack on minority children their kids are sent to the hospital at rates four to five times of other children. African-American children, for example, die at 10 times the rate for whites related to asthma. So when we're talking about the disproportionality of responsibility and the disproportionality of impacts, that's what we're talking about when it comes to environmental justice and vulnerability. Those are the areas that are wrong, they're tragic, and need to stop. And so Communities, elected officials need to make sure that incinerators, dumps, and power plants that emit pollution do not site near minority communities. If they can't be sited equally among affluent and white communities as minority communities, then they don't need to get built. If nobody wants them, let's look at clean ways to manage our environment especially since we have clean ways now. Yes, we do. There's no reason for anything to be this hard. We need to take care of all people, no matter what color their skin is. And taking care of them means we don't cite heavily polluting industries in or near their communities or interstates in or near their schools. Can you talk about your background a little bit more with regards to environmental justice? Sure. You know, when I was State director of the Georgia chapter of the Sierra Club, we did have an environmental justice program where we worked with African-American and minority communities to help them learn how to be activists and have their voice heard around areas that affect their community like dumping and incinerators and things like that. But when I left the Sierra Club, I went to Georgia Tech and there, I worked on a project called Energy Poverty, and we studied what we called emerging economies, those being Africa and India and some in South America. And it was really 
shocking to me to learn about that over 3 billion people on earth either don't have access to electricity at all or have it intermittent. And in many cases, there is no access to the grid. So sometimes they'll just wire themselves into some nearby place or find some other way to access the grid without having legal, safe access to it. And so a lot of the research that Georgia Tech did, and I think other academic communities are doing, is how to gain access to the grid for all of those people in ways that are affordable but also clean because they certainly can't build out the grid the way we have built it out without devastating their environment and the atmosphere further. And there are plenty of ways. When I think about energy in the U.S., everyone has access to energy. It's not always affordable. Many people get disconnected for a lack of payment. So we have our own problems. And it would be great if more of the community came together to work on the environmental justice problems that we have in our own country. At the same time, they're thinking about how to address energy poverty worldwide, which is a very big problem. So there are a lot of problems still out there unsolved with energy. And then when I left Georgia Tech and I went to where I am now, the Smart Energy Consumer Collaborative, of course, we study everything to do with consumers and energy, including several studies we've done on low to moderate income consumers and how they access energy. There's a lot of policies and programs that can help consumers manage their bill, but the issues continue with affordable energy and managing climate change, managing pollution, and how to afford to continue to build the grid in clean ways that don't exacerbate climate change or even address it, but also make it affordable for consumers. So there's a lot of issues around this area, and it's, it's very important to me and to SECC to have vulnerable populations have access to energy in ways that don't burden them disproportionately. We do a lot of research on that. Can you talk about your vision for the future with regards to climate change 20, 30, 40 years out? Where do you think we're going to be? I think 40 years is too far out and maybe 30 is even too late. I do have a really positive view for the future. I think in 20 years, that'll be 2040, I think we will be well on the way to reducing carbon emissions. Even if we don't have a national plan, which of course I hope we do, but if we didn't, if you just look around at all the corporations, all of the utilities, including my own utility, Georgia Power and Southern Company, all the states, all of them have made pledges to reduce carbon emissions or be carbon neutral or zero carbon by some cases 2050, in many cases 2040 and 2030. Even big oil corporate conglomerates like BP and those guys have made these pledges. So I'm really hopeful that that will be the way of the future. And I think it will. I don't think the pledges are are empty suits. I think people are really serious. We're seeing movement on it now in many ways. And I'm excited about that. If we don't get anything going by 2040 or 2050, I do think that's too late and we will experience the worst of what climate change has. But I personally think that won't happen. I cannot say that I agree, but I can <laughs> say that I very much hope that you are right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Leo. I hope so too. <laughs> And does the pandemic affect your vision for the future at all? No, not really. I mean, there's a couple of ways I would answer that. One is 
I worry that we will be distracted and lose momentum from some of the initiatives that are taking place, but I don't have any evidence for that. And I do think that when people talk about the causes for this particular virus, which is so much worse in terms of its spread than the other ones, but when you look at the last five years of viruses, whether it's Ebola or SARS or swine flu, almost all of them have to do with the way we treat animals, whether it's bushmeat or wildlife trading, which is what it was in China this time. But certainly, first world countries have intensive animal factory farming where they're using antibiotics in order to enable the animals to live long enough. Animals are living in intensively close areas together in unhealthy ways. I'm hoping that the impact of this coronavirus will cause people to see that animals need to be left alone if they're in the wild and treated with dignity and humanity if we are using them to farm them or eat them. But treating them disrespectfully, trading bushmeat across country lines is causing more and worse viruses to happen. And I'm hoping that people will pay attention to the connection between viruses and animal farming. In that regard, I think the coronavirus would have a positive impact on climate change because the connection with habitat and animals with climate change is very strong. Climate change is exacerbated by deforestation and desertification, droughts, and a lot of farming will be impacted. So I'm hoping the coronavirus got the attention of the entire world in a very harsh and sustained and immediate way that we'll start to think about sustainability differently too. And in that way, I think it could be a positive. It could have a silver lining. I wouldn't say positive, but it could have a silver lining. Yes, some of the meat substitute companies are doing well right now as people realize that there might need to be some changes in how we deal with the production of food. Yeah, you're right. And I have to tell you, when I first saw meat substitutes in the factory, you know, on a television documentary years ago, I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was disgusting, <laughs> ridiculous. I'm like, no way is that ever going to work. And now that I've had a Impossible Burger which sell out all across the U.S. At, at the least at all kinds of nice restaurants and Beyond Burger that you can get at Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and other nice stores. We just stocked um, up at Costco, Beyond Burgers. Oh, great. Okay. They're delicious. And for people that must have meat, they're the solution because they look like meat, they taste like meat, but yet they're sustainable and nothing had to die. So I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful in that regard, too. I think that's wonderful. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, Lee, I'm wondering, what is your impetus for doing these podcasts? Did you have a pivotal moment? Why did you decide to do these? And have you seen any specific outcomes? Like if you have a specific reason for doing these, has that reason been met? Because you've been doing these for a while, haven't you? A year at least? Almost a year and a half now. And I have seen the number of listeners grow, which is very exciting. I'm also sponsored now by the Department of Energy, which is exciting. Wonderful. The impetus is that, like you, I wanted to make a difference. And for a long time, I felt like I was doing that in my job when I was also involved with smart grid and grid modernization and clean energy. But I felt to some degree that my company was moving away from that. 
And I did not want to move away from that. I wanted to move toward it even harder. And I felt that my unique thing would be to be able to do, would be to be able to do, would be to do a podcast because even though I just didn't show it, I tend to be able to speak well and communicate. And I know a lot of people in the community trying to make a difference. I thought I could bring those stories to everybody else. Wow. Well, that's great. Well, I, for one, am really glad that you are doing this. I've listened to many of your podcasts and it's so interesting, especially to hear people that I know that you've interviewed and learn about their story because you can't really ask questions like these easily in an informal basis. So I've learned so much about what's in someone's heart, what's in someone's mind, what's someone's experience that led them along this path. So thank you for doing them. You're very welcome. And I've learned that too. I thought I knew these people, but their stories are always so interesting and I never knew what they were. Yeah, exactly. Do you have anything else that you want to say? I think one thing I would like to say is that I think people often confuse weather patterns with climate and climate change means a destabilization in the average weather patterns. I think it would help if people are confused about climate change or hear of people who disagree that it's happening, although they're fewer in numbers, they still are out there, that people think about looking at the patterns. So every year, new records are set for high temperatures. This year sets a new record, like 2019 was the hottest year on record in 2018 and so forth. Every year, there's more serious flooding, more damaging hurricanes and tornadoes. I think it's important if people think about climate change as a destabilization of weather patterns that they can see themselves in their own experiences is an important message for people who are confused about it. And the other thing I'd like to say is, I know when people vote, they vote for many reasons, many different reasons. But what I like to say is what I learned from a Sierra Club major gifts officer. Major gifts are gifts in excess of $10,000 that development officers will meet with high net worth people to ask for. And I learned this from a major gifts officer who was in my office. His name was Eddie. I'll never forget him. I learned a lot from Eddie. And he said, everything that you care about is important, of course. Child education is important. Victim advocacy is important. Homelessness is important and so forth. They're all very important. But without a stable planet and stable weather patterns, the rest of it can't happen. We have to have the earth that we're on, that we learn to adapt to, that we are comfortable in. We have to have weather that's normal. We have to be able to thrive and live in that weather with the crops that we grow and the things that we do. So that has to be the priority. That has to be the priority for everyone, behind which everything else comes. And that was how he often obtained major gifts. And I think it, it's a good argument. It's very clear and compelling. And that's how I think about it too. So that's what I wanted to leave with. Wow, that was impactful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Lee. And I'd like to wrap this up now. And I'd like to wrap it up with a wrap. 
You got inspired at a conference. A guy was angry and deranged, but he inspired you to look up things about climate change. You're pretty convinced the earth will still exist, but it will change the temperature, which will make people pissed. (laughs) Electrification and clean energy can get you very far, and that's what you try to communicate in your weekly webinar You found yourself very bored in IT, so you got involved in Sierra Club with clean energy policy. There was this guy who blew you off. What the heck? But you were persistent with the professor at Georgia Tech. Although it may not be a policy for the nation, many pledges are coming from big corporations. Smart energy, smart grid, smart meter throughout the land because you communicated with customers. Yes, thank you, Patty Duran. <laughs> All right. Yay. Thank you, Lee. That was awesome. My own rap. I love it. Patty inspired me to read the book Dumping in Dixie by Robert Bullard, which calls to question the complex and controversial issue of environmental racism. As Patty discussed, he shows how African Americans and minorities are being denied and stripped of a safe and healthy environment and face major economic, social, and psychological impacts associated with the siting of noxious facilities. And at the same time, these communities get less societal benefits due to carbon and noxious gas emitting energy production. They bear the brunt of the pollution and climate change impacts. If you are able, please join me in donating to Black Lives Matter and seeking out other ways to make this country as equal as we want it to be. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, please visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Patty had a successful 10-year career in information technology doing business-to-business major account web deployments, but was bored and wanted to make a difference. She left a comfortable job, reinvented herself numerous times, and grew to be strong and assertive to follow her passion to make a difference and help to mitigate climate change.